our Old Testament lesson, Leviticus 19, verses 9 through 18. And it is in here that we find that second of the greatest commandments of love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19, verses 9 through 18. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after you harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now our second scripture reading from the gospel according to Mark chapter 12. This will be verses 28 through 34. The Gospel of Mark 12, verses 28 through 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he, that is Jesus, answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Again, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Third and finally, James chapter 2. This is the epistle of James, chapter 2, verses 8 to 13. 
if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgments. Well, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's read responsibly now our Lord's Day lesson. Question three, how do you come to know your misery? The law of God tells me. What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in summary in Matthew 22, 37 through 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Can you live up to all this perfectly? No. I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. May the Lord bless this time of reflection and application of his holy word. Amen. As we begin to think here about Lord's Day 2, it's undoubtedly one that's quite familiar to you as we use it so often in our communion service. It's one that, on the face of it, is really quite simple. And so I want us to be thinking a little bit about some distinctions we can make today, as I often like to do with this uh, Lord's Day, because I think that we need to make sure that we avoid some confusion, um, some lack of clarity, when we think about the law of God. So on one hand, we should recognize that in Holy Scripture, the law can be used differently in different places. In other words, the words law can be used differently. Okay? That needs to be understood. Sometimes context informs us that the law refers to the first five books of the Bible, the law of Moses. Sometimes the law can be used as shorthand for the entire Old Testament. Sometimes it can be focused on ceremonial law. Like, for example, it seems to be the case often in Hebrews. Law can be used to speak about a general principle, a principle or law, like the law of the spirit of life in Romans chapter 8. And so there there are different ways that law can be used. I did not exhaust them all right there. We need to be sensitive to the context of Scripture. The way that we are using it here is to think about moral law. Moral law. What is moral law? When we think about how do you come to know your misery, the law of God tells me, we're talking about moral law, what is it? Moral law is an unchanging law of love. An unchanging law of love. In James 2 verse 8, we read about a royal law being fulfilled by love. This priority of love we see as Jesus gives the two great commandments. 
there's this unchanging moral principle of love. It includes other things, of course, but at the very heart of moral law is love. When we think then about God's moral law that is unchanging, we're thinking about a law that whether you're talking about in the Garden of Eden or outside the Garden of Eden, whether at the time of Noah, Abraham, Moses, or now, the commandment does not change because it pertains to love. Okay? As we think about this command of love, it it's not just whatever the world says love is. Okay? We're thinking about a love that is holy, a love that is true, a love that is just, righteous, a love that is angered even by wickedness. We're thinking about God's attributes that are really the foundation for His moral law. God's moral law is an expression of His moral nature. God's moral law is an expression of his moral nature. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Now we ask a question. Where is the moral law? Might seem like a silly question to ask, but it's an important one. For after all, moral law is not only found in Scripture. It is found in Scripture, but it's found outside Scripture as well. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. All creation is preaching a 24-7 sermon. That 24-7 sermon is about the glory of God. Part of which is that moral law. We think about the law that is written upon the heart of mankind, per Romans chapter 2, there is a law written upon our hearts in nature. What is that law? It's the conscience. It is the moral law. Mankind was made in the image of God. That image has been defiled, but not entirely lost, because God's common grace has upheld it and preserved a remnant of it, though defiled, of course. And so that moral law is not only in Scripture, it's being proclaimed by the heavens, it's written inside ourselves and the human hearts. God's creation abounds in the moral law, and that's the only way that creation can function properly, because God has tuned it according to His moral law. That's how things make sense. Of course, in Scripture we find it. Anytime there's a command that even remotely pertains to love, there's then a connection to the moral law. We find the great summaries of the moral law in Scripture with the two great commandments and also with the ten commandments. Today I want to just draw attention briefly to the love your neighbor command. It's, uh, I think, very interesting to me that... Those words, love your neighbor as yourself, don't even appear in the Bible until you get to Leviticus 19. It's not really prominence in the Old Testament. But Jesus still looks back to the Old Testament and says, that's the main one. Right? Sort of the second part of it. 
It doesn't feel terribly significant in the context of Leviticus. You don't see it repeated all over the place. Nevertheless, Jesus looks back and theologically he understands the direction of the Old Testament Scriptures. The direction of His law is always in that direction of love. So whether you're in the garden and you see man embracing his wife from the very beginning, understand that love is active there. We go even further before and see God creating all things and bestowing that gift of being image of God. God is loving His people. Jesus, in a way, gives us a lens through which to look at the entire Old Testament and theologically understand the significance of love to the entirety of the Old Testament Scriptures. Loving God and loving our neighbor. Even if the words are not peppered all over the place. Indeed, James brings us back to that royal law. Summarizing for us what it is that Christ, our King, our royalty, teaches us. Praise God, He brings us mercy and freedom because of His death and resurrection. Otherwise, we would be undone. Here in Lord's Day 2, the law is being used to convict our sins, to help us to remember that we would be undone, right? For after all, what does James say? If you have kept one of the commands, but it failed somewhere else, guess what? You broke the whole law. Why? Because the same God gave both commands. You keep one command, you break another, guess what? You violated the command of that one God who gave that command. You are a lawbreaker. You are convicted. And apart from Christ, you are condemned. This is that first use of the law, as we oftentimes refer to it. There are three uses. The first use is to convict us of our sins. And that is how it is operating here in the Heidelberg Catechism. That the moral law convicts us of our sins. The moral law should always convict Christians. If you are not convicted by it, we can begin to think that we are able to perfectly keep it. We begin to pat ourselves on the back. But that is so far from the truth. We always need Jesus. We are always continuing to sin we always need His forgiveness, not just at the beginning of our Christian lives, but throughout and to the very end, when Christ returns. So, the first use of this moral law is to convict us. The other two are to restrain sin in the common world around us. Our conscience, you know, the conscience of mankind, the unbeliever, their conscience functions to restrain sin. Likewise, any time that civil law manifests, approximates God's moral law, like, for example, a thief is punished in prison, that helps to curb and restrain sin. That's the second use of God's moral law. The third is the use of instruction and guidance. And we should note that that third use, that's what we come to at the end of our catechism, as the Ten Commandments are explained to us. And that is the use, the only one of those uses, that is from the very beginning of creation. Because in creation, in Eden, there was no sin. There was no need for conviction. 
There was no need for fierce warnings per se. There was need for guidance and instruction and that life of gratitude. Sin did not need to be curbed. It was forbidden by God's holy law. We are called to that third use, to obey with lives of gratitude. We will come to that later in our catechism. Um, So thus far, a few theological reflections to help us hone in on the moral law. Now as we conclude here, just some uh, practical reflections. And one is this, as Christians, we must recognize that we, we live in a world today where moral absolutes are especially um, being challenged, where they're especially being subject to change. This has happened across history ever since the, ever since the fall of mankind, where moral absolutes have always been marginalized. Paul writes in Romans 1, that mankind suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. And that is the case not only in our 21st century, but across the ages, where moral absolutes are pushed down, suppressed. The conscience of man plagues him or her often. And we are also inclined to do this from time to time. We must be on guard. I think that there can be a laxness that develops in Christians, especially if you've been a Christian for a long time. I know those things. I know God's word. I know God's law. I'm not going to be caught unawares and unsuspecting. We need to be vigilant, beloved, because that sin inside us wants to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. It wants to go against God's law. Even if you've been a Christian for 85, 90, 95 years, it still lurks there. It still wants to lead you astray. So may we guard our hearts. May we be convicted by the law. May we come back to it. And if we've recognized that we are failing to be convicted by it, to cry out and ask the Lord to do so to refresh that in our midst. You see, we can have the right ideas in our heads, but still be led astray by our hearts. So may we guard our hearts. For I tell you, the heart leads the head. More often than not. And if you fail to guard your heart, then you'll begin to rationalize and explain away sin. So guard your hearts. Guard them. May we not be those that marginalize God's moral law. One of the things that has happened in the Christian church, and this applies specifically to our own lineage, is that during times where the Bible is being marginalized, guess what happens at the very beginning of that marginalization? God's law begins to be marginalized. Sadly, we saw this in the Reformed Church in the 20th century. As certain ideas were getting traction and gaining a foothold, guess what else was being set to the side? The traditional reading of God's law. Whether the two great commandments or the Ten Commandments, they were lost. Because what do you want to do if you're becoming more worldly? If you want to become 
more likable to the world, to become more attractive to the world. We'll get rid of the tough stuff, right? Or at least don't read it as often. Don't give it such primacy. So what happens? That can happen here too. May we never marginalize God's law in an effort to, quote, win people. For people will not be won if they do not know their sin and their misery. We can oftentimes think that we're being kind and loving by setting the law to the side, but think about what the law is. It is a law of love. So how can we be loving if we're scared to speak the law and to direct people toward it? It's through the law that we come to know our sins. It's through the law that we can then come to understand salvation in Jesus. That is loving. May we in our own personal lives come back to that law of love. See how far short we've fallen. Cling to Jesus and then go back to that very same law of love to learn to love our brothers and sisters and our neighbors better than we did before. This is the foundation, the law, that we need to utilize if you are sharing the gospel with someone in your life. You think that there are different opportunities we have? Sometimes our opportunity to bear witness to Jesus is very quick, and we know that. We have a five-second window, so we just want to let our coworker know, our friend know, what did we do over the weekend? I went to church. It was great. I got to see my Christian family there. Maybe that's the only opportunity you have to testify to Jesus in that moment. There are other times you have 15 seconds and you want to speak about how wonderful Jesus is and that he is your hope, he is your confidence, he is your king and your savior, and you give your life to him. But if there's anything more than that where you're able to to speak to someone about Jesus, You need to be speaking about your sin. You need to be speaking about the law of God. You need to be talking about how you have committed insurrection against your Creator who loved you and you did not love Him. In fact, you were an insurrectionist aligning yourself with the devil and attacked Him with your sin. But rather than attacking you, God the Son received the vengeance that should have been yours. And you now find forgiveness from that king whom you offended. You now rest in his grace. We cannot marginalize the law as we testify to the gospel personally. Because otherwise we marginalize the work of Jesus. What did he do? He carried your law-breaking. He carried your sins. What did He do? He bore the curse of the law for you. What did He do? He kept the law perfectly for you. What does He do now for you? He sends the Holy Spirit into your heart that you now begin to keep God's law when you did not in the past. We cannot speak about the Gospel without also speaking about the moral law. We distinguish between the law and the gospel. We cannot separate those two from one another. 
So in our own personal lives, and as we testify to those around us, we cannot marginalize the law of love. That which is good, that which is true, that which is holy, that which is beautiful, that which is wonderful for many reasons. May we be a people convicted by the law. May we be a people that celebrates the solution in Jesus. May we bring that message out to the surrounding world. Amen.